today I'm thrilled to have Dr. Eric Warm visiting the Mountain Lion podcast studio via telephone from Cincinnati, Ohio. This podcast is part of a series of interviews which I'm conducting on bedside presentations and bedside rounding. Eric has been a pioneer in the area of patient-centered bedside rounding and teaching and has taught and spoken widely on this topic at meetings including the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine uh, as well as other locations. Uh, Eric, would you mind introducing yourself to our podcast audience and telling us where you grew up, went to college, medical school, and residency, and what your institution and role is at that institution currently? Well, I'm currently the program director, and I have been that for the past 10 years. And before that, I was the associate program director for 12, so 22 years in this job. I uh, grew up in Cincinnati. I went to college, medical school, residency, chief residency, and faculty at the University of Cincinnati. This is my 34th consecutive year. We just had another year, 35th consecutive year here at the university. Holy cow, that's a long time at one institution. Um, And what are some of your favorite things to do outside of medicine, Eric? Uh, I like to play my guitar, play music, write and create music. I like to ski play baseball, hang out with my kids and my wife. Um, that's, that's what I like to do. And where's the, do you go skiing outside of Ohio, or is it predominantly confined to Ohio? So we have uh, we have season passes at two places. There's a place outside of Cincinnati, believe it or not. Um, we have a very hilly country here, so it's a bump, but there's a ski place here in Cincinnati. And then we have season passes at Snowshoe in West Virginia, which is a, a nice little place in the mountains. Oh, interesting. About seven hours from where I live. Um, and uh, so, and where are you, just to put this in the context of your busy life and the graciousness you've shown in taking a break from the interview season, how far are you through this current 2019-2020 uh, uh, interview season? We are exactly at the two-thirds waypoint. We have eight interview days left, and uh, most of them are coming up in the next five to seven days going to be a crazy couple of days. <laughs> Again, I, I want to thank you for helping us out here by doing this interview. I know you're super busy. So at the outset here, I was hoping that you could describe what patient-centered bedside rounds is, as well as perhaps what it is not. I love that question. All right, so let's, let's do a little bit of background about reasons why you might want to, what, what's happened in American hospitals. So if you do... Um, there's a bunch of studies now, a bunch of time and motion studies that kind of measure what doctors actually do in teaching hospitals. And a paper from a couple of years ago uh, showed that the average intern spends about 7.7 minutes at bedside per patient. So the patient is admitted for 24 hours, and they get they get seven minutes of the residence time. Um, so it's really difficult to do anything in seven minutes. I mean, it's, it's hard to do. There are a couple of papers uh, recent, recently, Gonzalo wrote one, Sang wrote one, where they had the exact same time. Sang's paper was 7.31 minutes. Gonzalo's paper was about eight minutes. So in general, we're spending to seven to eight minutes at bedside. And Gonzalo had this great question, which I have memorized. He said, the unanswered question is whether eight minutes per patient is sufficient time for adequate shared decision-making, authentic interprofessional collaborative care, and desired outcomes. I can't even say that sentence in eight minutes. So it's not an unanswered question in my mind. There's no possible way you can do this at the bedside. So what are we teaching and learning if we're, if we're spending such a little amount of time there? So a few years ago, we thought we would try to organize it so the majority of rounds would be at the bedside. But um, 
we wanted to be very careful that we wouldn't want to simply recapitulate table rounds where a set of doctors are reading to another set of doctors at the bedside because we felt that would be dehumanizing and wouldn't wouldn't get at shared decision-making or collaborative care if we were just transplanting table rounds to the bedside. So we try to do something different, modeling ourselves after what they do in pediatrics, especially our hospital here in Cincinnati, um, called family center rounds, um, where you take the majority of the conversation to the bedside. Um, and it has multiple goals. You're, you're trying to achieve many things. You're trying to just take care of business. What is the work of the day? What, what decisions need to be made? And you're trying to engage the team, not just the physicians, but all the people on the team. And you're trying to make sure that it's conversation and language that is understood by the patient so that at the end of the day, they feel connected to their own care. Um, that's a challenge, especially with adults. For kids, it seems easier because there's usually just one or two problems and, you know, you're talking with the parents and but adults are harder, there's more data, there's more problems, but it's certainly possible. Um, so what, what you do when you take table rounds and you simply go to the bedside and talk about patients in front of patients to patients, when you can use those words, what you're doing is we call those not patient-centered rounds, those are patient-proximate rounds. So we are having conversations with, that's the important word, with patients. So when we get into the room, uh, we've done our pre-work. Um, we hopefully prepared the patient. Hey, tomorrow, patient, there's going to be a few people in your room. We're going to be talking about you. What do you feel comfortable talking about? So the very first move, if you do it right, is supposed to give the power to the patient to let them decide what is going to be discussed at bedside. In my experience, most patients want to talk about what brought them in. But there are occasions in which things are sensitive, or, you know, say you got a new diagnosis of cancer or HIV or something really difficult. Maybe that's not the moment that everyone has to be in the room. But for most cases, pneumonia, cellulitis, even the, the, the IV drug uh, epidemic we've been seeing with endocarditis, most people want to talk about those things. Um, so the first step is you, you give the, what do you feel comfortable talking about the patient? And, um, and then it's a conversation where the resident, whoever the lead presenter is, is going to have a conversation saying something like, Mr. Jones, Hey, last night or yesterday or today, you know, what we heard you say was that you were having chest pain. It was the center of your chest, and it went to your fingers and made them tingle. And we invite Mr. Jones to interrupt to be part of his own history if we don't get it right. Um, and it's a conversation with. Um, residents are pretty smart. They, they, they learn to take a, a true history, which is when they're taking that history, they are, they are uh, checking in to make sure they get it right. Um, but even if they don't, quote, get it perfectly right, when the patient interrupts or engages, it's not really interrupting when it's your own history, but when they, when they join in, it, it's a different feeling. Um, it's a good feeling to know that we're, we're really engaging this patient this way, unknowingly. And I ask this question to my applicants. It's, it's my killer question. I'm, I'm revealing my killer question uh, during application season. And I say something like this. Have you ever been on a ward team when you're on the ward team and the ward team rushes out of the patient's room and you feel like you got to go back in and apologize to the patient for what just happened in there. And I would tell you the majority of medical students shake their heads, oh my God, yeah, it's totally happened. Because medical students are not yet physicians. They're still making the transition from lay public to medical professional. And they see what we're doing is abnormal um, when, we, when, we, when we leave out, leave, leaving needs unmet. And they feel uncomfortable. And then in the acculturation of medicine, in this concept that Diane Vaughn is has written about called normalized deviance, where it just becomes the thing that we do. A third-year student will feel uncomfortable, but a third-year resident will not, and they've lost the ability to even recognize it as abnormal or something they shouldn't do. So my goal is to give the residents uh, the capacity not to become 
numb to it or accept it as okay, that your job was to make decisions and leave, and who cares what the patient thinks, feels, or knows. Um, and I think this conversation is an interesting one. I wonder what you think of it. Does that sound right to you? Uh, yes, absolutely. It's just it's hard when you're working in a call. I'd say we're probably about half and half here at UC Davis in terms of uh, bedside rounds, and I would say far less than half of that is is truly patient centered. Um, but but I I love that term. What was it? Uh, normali- normalized deviance. Right. Normalized deviance is, is, uh, is it was a term coined after the space shuttle Challenger blew up. Um, it was studied by a woman named Diane Vaughn. If you want to get into the literature, it's fascinating. But basically, the night before the Challenger blew up. Um, uh, an engineer named Bob Ebeling turned to his wife and said, I, I think it's going to blow up, it's going to blow up. And he knew. And what ended up happening when they went back to the um, to studying, uh, what happened was that the, the engineers were systematically reduced in the decision-making. And there was this problem with the thing called the O-ring. It was too cold. It shrunk. The gas leaked out. It blew up. They knew it was going to happen. And, and yet they couldn't stop it because of this term normalized deviance where basically I'm going to misquote the exact definition, but it's where um, outside people see something as deviant, uh, whereas inside people feel accustomed to it uh, and see it as normal. So an example of, we're only going to spend seven minutes with you today, patient. You know, if you went to the newspaper and said the average doctor is going to spend seven minutes with you, it would be, what? That's ridiculous. Whereas, that's what we do. Um, So that's, that's a classic case of normalized deviance. And you have to be able to recognize it or else it just becomes what you do. Huh, fascinating. It is a fascinating topic. You should go read about it. I really, it's a rabbit hole. You'll spend days. Because <laughs> then once you realize all the things you do that are normalized deviance, you're like, gosh, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, you could argue, I guess, that that's the basis of a lot of so-called hidden curriculum. Um, uh, oh, it absolutely is. So the classic normalized deviance of medical school is that medical students get rewarded for their strengths. So when they walk on any given ward, they have to get a grade. In order to get a grade, you have to show off, so you hide your weaknesses. In what world would you want your doctor to hide their weaknesses on the way to graduation? That's normalized deviance. Oh, fascinating. I certainly wouldn't want my pilot to do that, right? Nope. I, I want them to know their weaknesses. <laughs> so, so kind of um, backing up a little bit to, you know, obviously you guys have spent years building this culture of patient-centered bedside rounds at University of Cincinnati. How do you, in general, prepare your teams uh, for this, for presenting in this this manner, and 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 also the faculty who haven't done it before? You're trying to get on board to do it. So when we first started, we uh, had a small cadre of people um, who tried it and did a whole bunch of PDSAs, and we learned it's a it's a pretty good learning curve, by the way, because you're going to screw it up and it's going to feel uncomfortable, and and then you learn what not to do, and. Um, after the first couple of years where the few of us it became more and more, and then we just made it the thing. We said, this is what we're going to do on general medicine in our residency. And uh, we did our best to train the faculty up. Um, but now it's just the thing that we do. So it is, if in a way, the normalized deviance. It's the deviance that we have that you come into this culture. And the res- if we get a new faculty member who, who rounds in a different way, the residents know what to do. Uh, and they often can push the faculty to see it. Now, one of the dangers is if a faculty member does it poorly and it's awkward and it feels bad, they're really reluctant to try it again. So you definitely need to have, and we don't do this well, I fully admit that, 
that some people become wounded by the experience because they did it wrong or it went poorly, and then they just refuse to do it again. And it's hard to get them back in the saddle. So in a perfect world, we would have great coaches. Um, early on, we had people, like I would be shadowed by one of my colleagues who would give me pointers, and I would give them pointers. That, that program has gone away, but probably really valuable to say, hey, how, how did this go? Um, what, what we teach to the residents is, hey, when you get in there, if it doesn't go well, you got to debrief immediately. After that visit, what can we do? And then go try another thing in the next room until you get it right. Um, hmm. But it does, it, it, it's interesting. I, I can remember when it was difficult, but it's, it's really not that difficult once you realize what the goals are. The goals are information sharing, plan building. If you have disparate goals, so the goal is to get the work done only, then it's always at odds. So it's in fact that they can't cover that gap often have trouble. Um, and I guess this would be a good um, point for you to maybe interject about uh, some of the videos uh, that you guys have stored online, because I, I think the last time we spoke, which was probably a couple of years ago about this topic, you said that I think over 100,000 people had viewed those videos. Is, is that correct? Yeah, now we're about 150,000 last I looked. So what we did was, and we're about to, to launch a, a new set, I hope, my team decided to refresh these videos because they're getting a bit older, but what we did initially was just showed people like one long 22-minute version of how to do it. But the problem is there's no dogma. The only dogma that we that we have, if we have any, is what is best for this patient today. And so rounds can be different. And so it's hard, it was hard to encapsulate every, every possibility in one 20-minute video. So then what ended up happening over the years is that people keep coming up to us and saying, you can't do that at the bedside. You can't teach at the bedside. You can't talk about technical things. You can't protect patients. You can't have family members. And every time someone comes saying to us, you can't do it, we just made a video to show them that we could. And so all the videos on our on the website, um, if you go to YouTube and type U-C-I-N-T-M-E-D, U-C-I-N-T-M-E-D, into, into Google or YouTube, it'll come up. There's a bunch of videos where we show the fear or the bad example that people worry about, and then we give a lesson and then show how it can be done. Uh, hopefully we're going to be making some new videos because our... our, our are, uh, we think we can refresh, especially now that we have geographic wards um, and a different set of team, concept of team, but that's what the videos are there to do. And so what I notice when I have applicants is that they had never heard this before. They come here, they've, they've seen it on our website, and they often have a fear. Like the fear, the greatest fear of the medical student uh, is I'm going to go to the bedside and be embarrassed because I might get something wrong in front of my patient. Uh, that's something that's possible, but not, not our desire, and we have a way to mitigate that. And, we have a video to show you how we do that. So um, that's what the videos are about. Yeah, it's uh, for those listeners that haven't checked out these videos, I definitely would strongly encourage all of you to take a look at them. I would say if there's 150,000 people that have viewed them, there are people uh, watching and learning a, a great deal from them. Um, so, Eric, I think one of the sort of, um, and this is, I realize, a complicated question, but... From what I understand from the literature on bedside teaching, bedside presentations, patient-centered bedside rounds, and so forth, in most medical centers in the country, less than 20%, and in some cases even less than that, of rounding time with attendings is spent at the patient bedside. Um, and I've personally talked with faculty at some medical center, prominent medical centers in the country that spend less than 5% of their attending rounds time at the patient bedside. What do you think is the 
underlying issue there. Why, why have we gotten so far in general at so many medical centers away from where things used to be, say, 50 or 60 years ago? So in the 1930s, 100% of the rounds were conducted at bedside. Why? Because the generator of the data was the patient, and the only way you could get the data was to go there and, uh, and be with the patient because you didn't have scans. You had nothing except your own connection with the patient. Now there's this incredible amount of data um, as patients pass through the medical center, and all that data has to be reviewed. And, uh, and I think that's what's happened is that you know, it's really hard to do that and see patients at the same time. You don't need a patient to see the heart murmur anymore. You don't need a patient to, to feel the spleen. You can see it all on all the scans. And not only that, all this other layer of bureaucracy has been put on. Think about all the things you have to do in your given day, all the check boxes. Now, that's made us better, but the balancing measure is that you've got to have time for that. So uh, I think that's the major reason is that we've got information overload. And the, the trick then is how you, how you can do both. How can you can do the information, get all the check boxes done, and, uh, and be with the patient. So in a sense, with your two-computer approach in the room where someone's retrieving data, someone's entering orders, um, you're kind of, in a way, counterbalancing that need to know all this data, this, this, this technology that we have available with rounding at the patient's bedside and explaining things to the patient as you go. That does part of it, but let me... Let me uh stress something I didn't emphasize before. So there has to be some prepping for this moment, and this is something we don't get all the attendings to do, but, but those that do it are masters, that we should come prepared for rounds. We should have already read the H&P that the resident wrote. We should already have seen the labs. The, the majority of the timestamp of rounds should not be information transfer from one person to the next. If I come to rounds prepared with the knowledge, then you don't have to tell me what it is. Then I can see you use it and explain it and do all higher value things and simply recite it or read it to me. So in this world, if we all did our part, I'm supposed to, as the attending, to read the HMP anyway. I'm supposed to look at labs anyway. What if I did it before rounds and showed up ready and and the timestamp around then is using information, not transferring? You could really do a lot um, in a little bit of time. On the other hand, those attendings who wish to be served by coming completely unprepared and the, and, the, and the resident has to read everything to them, uh, then it's really difficult to, to manage the information. So um, we as attendings need to do our part, and I think it goes much better. Hmm. And in the context of uh, a team rounding at the bedside, um, where does the faculty generally, I mean, it's, I know it's hard to generalize about this, but where in general are the best te- you know, places for teaching points as the presentation is occurring. Now, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, that you'd probably encourage the faculty not to interrupt the presenter. Um, So I'm thinking it's probably not in the middle of a presentation, but where generally do you find that you make your most, uh, how shall we say, pithy teaching points at the bedside? So this this is probably the thing we argue about the most. What are we teaching? What are we learning? And most people focus on content. This is all about how to diagnose an RTA, what to do with the sodium, uh, you know, whatever it is that we're teaching. And um, and sometimes one of the bouncing measures of being at the bedside is that residents feel they didn't get enough t- 
chalk talks or teaching, you know, points. Um, and that could happen. So if you, all you're doing is management decisions all day, it's possible you could lose this classic content delivery. It, our suggestion is to always start with the chalk talk first and then go on rounds. Then, because if rounds are always, you know, shaggy at the end, you can you can never guarantee you're going to get to X o'clock, you know, whatever time you want to end. So my advice is if you want to do that kind of classic board teaching, do it first. But then I will I would challenge you, and this is something that I get pushed back on, but what are we teaching when we're rushing? What are we teaching when we are ignoring patients' needs? What are we teaching when we don't um, share decisions? So I consider all of that positive role modeling, uh, the important teaching, because content will come. I got, I got academic half day, I got all kinds of testing programs. I'm gonna teach you the content. I need to teach you the process, and that's the only place you can do that is the bedside, in my opinion. So I consider all those moments to be teaching. And when something comes up, we sometimes have to say to the patient, hey, we're gonna talk a little doctor here just for a second, and we'll go to the whiteboard in the room and we'll do whatever, we'll pull up labs. Patients in general like us seeing struggling with ideas. Um, as long as at the end of that, we then say to the resident or whoever, hey, can you now explain to Mr. Jones what it is we just talked about? So I, I like to broaden the concept of teaching um, from the perspective of the learner. What is the learner learning? And so if we are learning efficiency for efficiency's sake, if we are learning uh, that, if we're learning how to ignore a patient's needs, uh, then that's the wrong thing, in my opinion. Um, people will push back on me, though, because they think teaching is about the content. I think it's content is easy. Process is hard. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, so... Do you think there's any way to reverse this trend and to get faculty and learners back to the patient bedsides? I mean, you, you've been doing this for years there, and it's it's uh, part of your culture and obviously takes a huge amount of energy and, and commitment. Um, but do you think there's a way to reverse the trend nationally? Well, I, if I knew how to do that, I would... I would suggest it, but I think that the conversation we just had about what's, what's, what are the values that we're underpinning, what are the goals of the day, and unless we share the same goals, the goals uh, of an end, getting to end, I think um, I want to know the information and make the right decisions, and I want to engage patients in, in ways that are meaningful and well-received. Um, if, if we could have that conversation first, then it would lead to different approaches. Um, at the bedside, that's what I think. It is fascinating to think about the fact that a huge amount of time nationally uh, in our hospitals, in teaching hospitals, is spent on attending rounds, and um, that you know, patient-centered or even bedside presentations are, are are not generally part of the routine, the sort of standard of care, if you will. Um, it, it 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 really fascinates me. I think there's a lot of things we're pushing against when we, you know, when we do this. And I, I guess one of the questions along those lines are, it's uh, what I think was referred to back in the early 1980s in New England Journal as thin ice when you're at the bedside. Um, you go out in that thin ice, you're worried about, you know, uh, maybe a, an angry family member popping up somewhere in there or... Um, the patient gets called for a test halfway through your your rounds. Just sort of the very unpredictable things, some of which are, are I think, extremely positive, like 
the un, you know undiscovered physical finding that makes the diagnosis at the bedside in front of seven or eight eager learners. But um, how? I just totally lost my train of thought there with my question. Well, I think I, I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up. I think that um, you know rounds like this are uh, they can be chaotic. They're unpredictable. The only thing you can predict is it won't be the same today as it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. But the example you just gave of of an um, angry family member. So so if you ignore the patient in the morning more, they're just going to be angrier. And if I if I need to watch a resident deal with an angry person or myself role model how to do that. When, when else are we going to do that? So I think most things can be handled well. Now, the idea of that, so I think that, I, that example of the angry patient or the angry family member, I, let's, let's go for it. Let's deal with it. What about the person who talks too much? What about the person who's tangential? Those are all lessons that we all encounter these patients every day. And how am I teaching you how to do it if I'm not, if we're not doing it, right? So otherwise I'm leaving you to figure it out on your own. And uh, I'm not going to be your coach in that moment. I'm just going to be the guy that says, well, here's this angry person. Go deal with them. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that has to be said uh, that that uh, I think scientists and purists really want to know about is, is, is patient-centered rounding better for patients? And there's a whole mixed literature on this, and it's not, it's not mostly positive. So it hasn't been shown to improve care. Um, there are, you know, the problem if you look at the literature, is that it's so diverse that there's like, you've seen one place, you've seen one place. Um, there's some great uh, ethnographies that say that even though you think you're doing patient-centered language, you might not be, and I certainly fall into that trap myself. Um, in general, patients like it, so satisfaction is higher, but who cares if satisfaction's up if, if, uh, if outcomes aren't there? So I think another way to answer the previous question, which is how can we get people to do this, if we could find a way that actually improved outcomes, then it would be hard not to consider it. And that hasn't happened uh, despite many, many attempts um, from many different centers. Um, now, I'm not an expert on, on, uh, on that, but uh, I wish the literature, you know, it would be, be helpful to all of us that literature was, uh, was supporting it for outcomes. But I can tell you from anecdote, which you shouldn't listen to anyone who says from anecdote, from anecdote, I would never round it another way because, I, you know, even in the outpatient, it, this conversation with patients where they understand what you say and can use the information, uh, I, I think that it's valuable and I wouldn't go back. Um, and we should strive to getting the outcomes data. And if we don't get it, we have to find out why and then keep going because it's not good enough just to be well-liked. You have to be better. Fascinating. Any last thoughts for us about the patient-centered bedside presentations or anything else for that matter, Eric? I, uh, gosh, I said a lot. I don't really have, uh, I really don't have additional information other than uh, if you're going to try it, start small and uh, learn how to fail and succeed and debrief a lot. And, um, and you can certainly reach out to my group or the groups that, uh, that do this and what advice to have there's always those videos too for examples of how to do this well well I want to thank you for being on the podcast today I think that I know that our listeners will find this interview really helpful particularly if they're fostering an interest in doing more patient centered bedside rounds and I wish you luck with the rest of your interview season and congrats on your 35 years with the University of Cincinnati Eric that's quite an achievement Good luck with the rest of yours as well. You're here. All right. Thanks a lot, Eric. Take care.